Welcome to Med Talks, a project of the Palm Beach County Medical Society. Thank you for listening to us as we bring you many topics of interest to medicine and our society. I'm Dr. Brent Schillinger, along with Dr. Abby Strauss, and today we're talking with Dr. Travis Reeder, PhD, who is a medical bioethicist with Johns Hopkins University's Berman Institute of Ethics. He's also author of the book, In Pain, A Bioethicist's Personal Struggle with Opioids. You have a very interesting life story, a transition from motorcycle enthusiast bioethicist to opioid patient to opioid researcher. What happened? I was not studying anything even closely relevant to pain, opioids, drug overdose, any of the things that consume me these days. I was a climate ethics and a planetary limits public health researcher. I was an avid motorcyclist. And so in 2015, I went out for a, for a day ride, but I was not even out of my neighborhood. And I got hit by a van. The guy blew a stop sign and T-boned my motorcycle. So he, he basically crushed my left foot. That moment really changed everything for me. Traumatic injuries are want to change lots of things for people, but it not only changed my personal life because I nearly lost my foot and had many surgeries and lots of hospitalization. Because I was able to reconstruct the foot with kind of an interesting phenomenon, had they had to do the amputation, the whole thing would have been much quicker and in some ways been an easier recovery. But because the reconstruction was successful, I had a series of surgeries, but all of that re-traumatizing going into the operation room again and again, more surgery, more pain, and all of that meant lots of continuous high-dose opioids, tolerance kicks in, increase the dose, and I ended up being on opioids for a little over two months. How bad was the pain and how good were the drugs? Oh man, the pain was absolutely awful and the drugs were life-saving. I had never been in that sort of accident before. I'd never had traumatic pain or major post-surgery pain. And so that's bifurcates your life. There was everything before where I thought broken bones were painful, routine sports injuries. And now I know, right, real life limiting kind of suicidal making pain is. My first night in the hospital, I was under medicated. Everybody left after the first reconstruction surgery went pretty late. And I was on a very routine morphine interspersed with oral oxycodone, fairly low dose regimen, was just not keeping everything under control. And that first night, I had nightmares about that for a year afterwards, just the pain absolutely spiraling out of control. Then when I finally got it medicated, IV fentanyl, IV morphine, IV hydromorphone, those drugs especially were just, you have pain that's all consuming that really just makes you want to smash your head against the wall to change something. And you get this stuff in your veins and within a few seconds, it's lights out, you're floating away. It's somewhat comfortable oblivion. So really life-changing medications for sure. So as bad as that experience was, you described it was even more difficult trying to get off of the medication. That was the real challenge. All of this sounds maybe interesting from a storytelling perspective, major accident, lots of surgery. I'm a bioethicist, and so I study healthcare systems. You find lots of interesting stuff when you become a patient. I don't recommend this as a source of research programs, but you learn lots of mistakes and gaps when you become a patient. It was the two months out after the initial accident when I, I saw my trauma surgeon for the first time in quite a while. He had performed the first three surgeries, kind of pulling the bone shards together, and I hadn't seen him much. And so it was a check-in to get the x-rays, see if the foot was stitching, see if I'd ever walk again. He heard how much meds I was on, what my pain was like, and he got very concerned, very serious. Travis, this is, this is too much. You've been on this stuff for too long. 
And that was really two months out. That was the first serious conversation anyone had with me about the dangers of the medication, the risks of medication. And so I did not know that kind of mere, quote unquote, mere physiological dependence could be a real obstacle that I would go through pretty serious withdrawal. I didn't know that tapering could be better or worse. He sent me to my prescribing surgeon to give me a taper. And that surgeon said, well, let's, let's take you off everything in four weeks. And that taper was just nightmarish. I went into really awful withdrawal on day one. And all it did was get worse for 29 days. The kind of horror story within my story is this month in withdrawal. And that's really what led to my research program, trying to figure out how we could be so bad at pain medicine that these drugs that we use all the time for severe pain, surgical pain, post-traumatic pain, could be the sort of thing that I just could not get help weaning off of. One thing that comes to mind, and I think is one of the complicating notions in the topic that we're discussing is differentiating between treating acute pain and chronic pain. Clearly your accident was as acute as could be, and thank God you're better. I mean, that's just good. One of the things maybe that too many physicians do is they over-treat acute pain, and they are too quick to eliminate all discomfort in the patient. And they might mean well, but they're not doing it right. How have you learned the differences between the chronic pain versus the acute pain that you had? This is such a key point. So you kind of go back to 2015 when I'm thrust into this conversation. I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything about pain medicine, addiction medicine. I didn't know the difference between a pain interventionist and a pain psychiatrist, right? Like I was really going to have to learn everything. I thought maybe I was learning something about generally how pain is treated. And so the idea was, we irresponsibly treat pain, which may not always be over-treating because I had a lot of pain in the hospital after major surgeries. So it may not be that the dose was necessarily wrong, but there was kind of irresponsibility at how carelessly it was done. Nobody was following up. Nobody was worried about an exit strategy. Nobody was managing my dose over these months. And I did not yet understand all of the different kinds of pain. And so fast forward years, and I've been living in this literature. Well, yeah, now we can think about they're all different sorts of acute pain, and not all of them require opioids. One of the things that we've done is we've overtreated moderate acute pain, ankle sprains and sports injuries, and sometimes even fractures can be treated just as well with ibuprofen and Tylenol. And, and we know this in the literature now. Then there's the severe post-surgical, post-traumatic pain. This is a really good indication for opioids. But this is one of those places where, because we are so comfortable saying opioids are obviously indicated, that we might not worry too much about what we're doing to the patient. You're giving them the gobs of this medicine and not thinking long-term. And then you throw in the fractured healthcare system, the fact that my surgeon is not going to be monitoring me daily. You know, my orthopedic trauma surgeon, I'm going to be lucky if I see him once a month for the following months. And so somebody has to kind of take me on as their responsibility. So that's one thing. But yeah, now we've got chronic pain patients, and there can be genuinely severe chronic pain, intractable pain. And there has been a lot of prescribing over the past 20 years where somebody comes to a general practitioner with no real pain medicine training and says, you know, I've got this diffuse lower back or, or gut pain or shoulder pain, arthritic pain. And they get put on opioids because there was an era of not worrying too much about the risks of opioids. We have a population of patients who have been on opioids for a long time. They're sometimes called legacy patients. And maybe not all of them should have been put on opioids in the first place. And then there are chronic, severe, intractable pain patients who have been through the ringer 
who have done responsible multimodal pain care and who have really struck out with everything and as a fifth or sixth or seventh line treatment are offered some amount of opioids in a really responsible, managed way, and they respond well to it, and it gives them some quality of life back. I mean, just think about all the categories we just laid out. These are all really different kinds of patients. So sort of medical ethics, the responsible prescribing is going to be super different for all of them. So I think the easiest cases that we started to learn are don't use opioids as first-line treatment for somebody with chronic pain. If they have chronic pain, it can last a really long time. And so if you can manage it in another way that has fewer side effects, that would be better. And moderate acute pain, you know, routine dental extractions, force injuries, ankle sprains, probably not a great indication for opioids. But almost all the other cases are just way harder. And so the idea that opioids are either good or bad, you know, they're either God's gift to everything or they're evil drugs that get their hooks in you, is really problematic because all those cases are going to take a lot of thinking through. Back to your specific challenges in the withdrawal period, you describe it kind of like a game of hot potato where you're just thrown back and forth from practitioner to practitioner. Do you think it was just bad luck on your part that you hooked up with the wrong doctors or do you see this as a systemic problem? This is the kind of first big question that I faced because when I finally came out of withdrawal and I mean, was really trying to to reflect on what happened to me. I had my foot blown apart, but the withdrawal was by far the most traumatic part of the whole experience. It was just, it was a month in hell. I was trying to figure out what happened. Does it happen to other people? Could, could it be fixed? And as an ethicist, as a researcher, kind of slowly start to turn my curiosity. And at first I really didn't think I would tell my story. I didn't think I would talk about this. I didn't think this would become part of my life because I thought I was probably just unlucky. The fact that I had this idiosyncratic thing happen to me isn't all that important, isn't all that interesting. I started talking, sharing my story with close friends and family. So you're a Johns Hopkins professor. You're at three world-class hospitals in the Washington, D.C. area. You had your foot stitched together. You were in really technically sophisticated care with more than a dozen prescribers. And you think you maybe got unlucky? Like that starts to seem pretty improbable. It feels more like nobody saw you as their problem because this was systemic. And so that was the launching off point for me to just go around and start talking to people. And so I started making friends with interventionists and some of our inpatient pain docs and one of our pain psychiatrists and just started informally interviewing them and telling them my story and saying, are you surprised? You know, how does this happen? And to a person, nobody was surprised. To a person, everybody was like, I'm so sorry this happened to you. That sounds like what probably happens in a fractured, largely uneducated about pain medicine healthcare system. You opened up a very significant, unspoken of ethical issue in proper pain management, follow-up interactions between doctors. It's, it's, it's an enormous topic. It's an enormous topic. It must have felt good at one level to get the acknowledgement that you weren't the only one and also rather distressing, to say the least, that you clearly were not the only one. You really fell into something here. Interesting. It's true. It's the exact combination you talk about. It felt really good because I thought, you know what, I can do some good here. And that's, that's what I've been trying to do for the last five years. But on the other hand, it is really distressing. The first article I wrote was in the journal Health Affairs. And I made what I just thought was the most sensible possible point, which is that if you're a clinician and you prescribe a patient a medication that has dangerous, potentially life-threatening side effects, 
then you have a responsibility for mitigating those effects or making sure they're mitigated by somebody else. Would you go so far as to say that one of the ethical issues, and it's probably endemic to medicine in, in a lot of ways, is that doctors frequently practice outside of their specialties. And so a surgeon can put your bones back together, really doesn't know what he's doing when it's coming to pain. I don't, I don't want to be too simplistic with that. There are some surgeons who are excellent at it. But on the whole, do physicians not fear practicing outside of their specialty? Is that part of the problem? I think that's got to be part of it for sure. So it's not only that they do practice outside their specialty, but they're required to, right? We expect our surgeons to take care of our pain, which is strange since we don't necessarily educate them. You know, surgery doesn't require going through some kind of pain medicine module in medical school or in residency. You, you pick it up, hopefully responsibly from your attendings. And there's a huge variation in how much a surgeon, for instance, is educated on pharmacology of opioid, how much they understand. And so I go around and I talk to big conferences full of clinicians, people who professionally very often prescribe opioids for a living. And many of them have no idea that physical dependence on opioids can start in a few days with around the clock dosing. And if I say, hey, how long is it before withdrawal is an issue? They say, oh, you know, a month or two, maybe, maybe a couple weeks if you're really sensitive to it. And like, there's a whole bunch buried in there. But one of the things they're really surprised to hear is really important is, well, look, by two weeks, some people will actually have some trouble. They won't sleep well when they come off the meds. They're still in pain. Their pain goes up. And so they take more to compensate. And so now we have this literature that shows that the longer you put somebody on opioids at the outset, the more likely they are to stay on for one in three years, uh, which is totally unsurprising. One of the things is that in the, the TED Talk that I heard that you did and some of the other discussions, there really was no discussion of clonidine, using mm -hmm. catapress to reduce withdrawal effects. And it seems in our medical community right now, there's too much, way too much emphasis on getting on Suboxone or getting on methadone as opposed to trying to get someone off. The ethical quandary here is, is rather significant. What do you find physicians want to learn from you? What techniques, what attitudes did, did your experience is it producing? I would say the most common is, so by and large, I speak to, to generalists. I, well, not even generalists isn't the right word, but I, I treat to non, I, I talk to non-pain specialists who find themselves prescribing opioids, general practitioners, family docs, sometimes surgeons. And so they want to know, like, if I prescribe two weeks of opioids for a, a knee replacement, how hard is it going to be? And what's the most reasonable strategy for getting them off? And that's one of the easy cases, right? It's an easy case because what you really need is a bunch of patient education so that they know what's coming up front. And at two weeks, they're likely to have some withdrawal effects, but they're also likely to not be severe. And so if you prep them for that and you give them a sensible taper, that's really most of what you need for these kind of pretty standard routine cases. But then you have trauma surgeons, you know, people dealing, family docs who get the handoff from patients who have been through trauma, who are more likely to be on opioids for six weeks or two months or four months or something. Those cases get a lot harder. And so then you do have a conversation about like, look, clonidine is off-label use in the States, but it's widely practiced by anyone who does this routinely. So do you need to know about clonidine? Do you need to know about trazodone for sleeplessness? Like what, what's the sweets that you need to be educated on? 
pharmacologies that can help somebody once you already have established a smart tapering plan, but they maybe still have pretty uncomfortable withdrawal symptoms that could stand in the way of them getting off the medication. So one thing that you're right about is Suboxone is discussed a little bit as if as soon as somebody has a hard time getting off opioids, we should put them on that because it's a safer opioid. It has a ceiling effect on respiratory depression. But it's, it's not a great move, in my opinion, for somebody who doesn't face one of two things. They don't face addiction issues, and so they're not actually psychologically craving the drug. They're not having a hard time sticking to a plan. They don't need the long-term addiction help. And if they haven't been on it so long, that what you really need to do is stabilize them on a drug and get a nice slow taper that might last six months or a year or more. If they're a fairly routine patient, surgery, trauma, you know, some weeks or months on opioids, putting them on Suboxone is an extra step. You can probably get them off with a good taper and some mild pharmacological help, like with something like clonidine, which again, I should mention is off-label. I, I agree with you. I mean, on the other hand, if I'm talking to addiction docs, I don't do anything to undermine the move to Suboxone because it's really, really crucial in the addiction medicine context. And if patients need to be on it for quite a long time, if it cuts their all-cause mortality by 50 to 70%, then I'm happy for them to go on it. But in the general context of tapering people, it's very often a step that isn't needed. Do you think it's largely a failure in medical education, or is it also a failure in uh, adhering to basic medical ethics? You know, we do beneficence, give the pain medicine to reduce the pain, but maybe we ignore the non-maleficence. You know, we're, we're harming them by not being able to guide them properly off of the medicine. I think it's probably got to be part of both, failure in education, and it's not just with opioids. So we should be clear here. One of the things that's a failure of education is understanding that prescribing can be a long-term relationship and is not a one-and-done activity. So part of the problem with opioids is this idea that they're somewhat like antibiotics, that you sign your name to a prescription pad, hand it over, and that's the extent of your job. But the thing with opioids is they, they cause tolerance, physical dependence, have risk of addiction and misuse, which means it's not like antibiotics. When you sign your name on that prescription pad, you hand it over, um, now you've entered into a relationship where you're on the hook. You have some responsibility for how these side effects occur or don't in your patients. So that's thing one. But opioids are not the only drug that have these properties. Very similar are drugs like benzodiazepines, but also drugs that we don't think of having, quote unquote, abuse liability. So a lot of psychiatric meds. How many people in the U.S. are on Paxil or Lexapro? And these drugs also cause physical dependence, and so withdrawal upon abrupt discontinuation. And in that case, too, we don't have nearly enough emphasis in education on the fact that just because you know how to prescribe Lexapro to a patient who has some general anxiety doesn't mean that you're qualified to really manage them as a patient, because eventually they might need to get off the drug, and managing withdrawal is part of the responsibility of prescribing. So the catchphrase here is responsible prescribing of a medication entails knowing how to de-prescribe medication. 
And that's the component that I think has been missing from medical education. I agree with that. As a psychiatrist, I see many well-intended colleagues who are non-psychiatrists put people on all sorts of recipes of psychiatric medication, and they mean well, and I know they mean well. And you talked earlier about the fragmented medical system and the availability of proper psychiatric monitoring and the insurance issues, and we can go on and on and on. But they don't know, and they don't understand that a specialist sees a situation differently than a generalist, which is what's supposed to be. Brent is a dermatologist, and when people come to me and say they have little monitor skin, I can't comment on that. I have no idea. It's itching, and I can't see the doctor. Can you give me something? Not really. So the desire to help is there, but maybe what Brent just said and what you just said, we need to add at least one solid course in proper medication what should we call it? Let's, getting off of meds, you know, or something like that. But most people don't know how to take people off of medicines. And you're, you're absolutely correct. And then what also happens is that people who have been on pain medicines, when the pain's gone, they stop the medicines. They have a day or two of feeling yucky, maybe a little bit longer. And you say, really? You're okay? Yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay. And like you said, sir, earlier on, there are a hundred categories here and we mm-hmm. have to be careful not to just clump them into just two or three. I like what you're speaking about and what you're trying to emphasize. I, I do. I appreciate that. Sorry you had to go through such misery to learn it, but I'm glad you're doing it. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. And that Brent asked a minute ago, is it medical education or is it ethics? We talked a little bit about the education. It doesn't have that medication management course or whatever we call it in there. I guess the one thing to add then is once this is brought to your awareness, then if you fail patients, then it becomes an ethics failure, right? So it's kind of two-staged. And part of why I do this work, part of why I want to talk to clinicians is because I get literally hundreds of emails from patients, you know, having given a TED talk, having written a book, my contact information is out there and patients reach out to me to tell me about their just catastrophic withdrawal. Suicidal patients reach out to me, which is devastating because I'm not a medical doctor. I, I, I don't know what to do for them. They've been abandoned. They're doctors who gave them all these medications saw how much trouble they are in and they said, oh, you're out of my expertise. You need to find someone else. And they can't. Once we've identified that this happens and it's no longer a medical education failure, if you ignore those patients, now if you orphan them, if you send them away because you're afraid they're, they're now an addiction patient and that you don't want them in your office, now it feels like an ethics failure. So that's part of the move here, trying to, to get the knowledge out there so then we can encourage responsible behavior. And we should be super clear, policies would help. We don't want this all to fall on like the overworked individual doctor. It'd be really nice if we had some structures in place to help all of these patients. I do want physicians following up with their patients that they've made prescriptions for. I want them to see that as their responsibility. If someone comes to you, a doctor friend, and says, I have a problem, I don't know how to manage getting off of the medicines. Is there a simple rule of thumb recommendation that you can make? I've worked with a group uh, called the Adam Alliance, a nonprofit contractor with the CMS, to develop a pocket guide for tapering. And if there's interest, I can get the digital form of this to you that you could post. It's basically like a bookmark-sized, double-sized document. And on one side, it has like an eight-step tapering regimen. And then on the other side, there's some information about medications like clonidine, how to use them and and in what doses. But the really important thing, you can do a lot of good as a clinician with just knowing this one piece. 
if your patient is suffering from withdrawal and that's standing in the way of them getting off of opioids, there's one rule that everybody could do a lot of good with. It's that you start with no more than a 10% dose reduction from the patient's starting dose per week, and then evaluate how the patient does with that. And going back to something you said a little bit earlier, patients are wildly different. Sometimes you'll do that. and The patient's like, I didn't notice any difference at all. I want to be off this stuff. And so then maybe you try a 25% dose reduction. And if nothing happens, you can just continue at a faster rate. But sometimes you'll try a 10% dose reduction. The patient will get violently ill and think, I can never do this, which means you need to figure out a really slow taper. A pain psychologist, Beth Darnell out at Stanford, has shown that if you start at no more than 5% dose reduction every other week for patients who have a really profound dependence, that you have a higher rate of success than if you start at anything faster. So some patients are just going to need a really slow taper. That's the kind of first step rule. Helping patients, making sure that you can get them a prescription in doses that make the math easy, figuring out how to just go slow. And then if they have a hard time, well, now it's more complicated. Now maybe they someone with specialty training, but a lot of clinicians could just go slow and do a lot of good. Dr. Travis Reeder, Johns Hopkins Berman Institute of Ethics, thank you so much for this conversation. You bet. Thanks for having me.